Welcome to the show. This is the podcast for great communicators and people who are interested in communication. And we're trying to talk to a very wide variety of contributors on the podcast. So I've had actors on and comedians and a children's illustrator uh, and PR people, of course, and CEOs. And we're trying to hear from lots of different types of communicator, people who approach this craft, if you could call it that, from different perspectives and different directions. And I'm using a lot of their insights in the book that I'm writing about leadership communications, which will be coming out uh, hopefully at the end of this year, possibly next year. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, today, I'm delighted we've got Paul Blanchard here. Hello, Paul. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And Paul, if you don't know, and it's, and it's unlikely that, that you'll be in this position, but if you don't know, Paul is the host of the Media Masters podcast. Actually, I want to say Media Masters. I want to say it with a northern accent, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paul, because <laughs> I'm so used to hearing you you say it. And it's a fabulous podcast. It's not as good as this one. I well, like it, to, no, it is. And it's about. much better established, and you have an incredible range of guests. And looking back on everyone you've had on that show, Paul, it's, it's the who's who of global media uh, extraordinary i'm very flattered that you think that i mean we you know we've been turned down by a lot of people uh, and uh, i'd say what's very interesting is you know people that were turning us down sort of two or three years ago are now asking to come on so i can sense that we're stepping up a little bit i mean about two-thirds of, our, of the interviewees are people who've asked to come on the show or their pr team has asked to come on so well that, that's you know, an amazing feels... point to get to when people are, yeah. people are coming to you absolutely and so you you you, you host the media masters podcast um and you also run a, a PR agency, which is aimed, if I'm getting this right, at, at CEOs, at business leaders, at the kind of personal side of PR. That's right, isn't it? Yes, we only work for chief executives of, of business. What we do builds on and runs alongside their existing in-house team and their retained agency. You know, if you if you own a cutlery company, we wouldn't issue a press release saying you brought a new range of spoons out or something like that. We'll <laughs> leave that to the in-house or the, the, yeah. the agency. We're about disrupting the steel industry or, you know... Challenging the Cutlery Manufacturers Association about their complacency about whatever you know whatever yeah. the the CEO wants to do, but it's it's working on the business rather than kind of in it. Yes, and and but but crucially with the person rather than with the corporate entity. Yes, I mean I, we would say this, wouldn't we? But we're of the view that organisations benefit hugely from having more visible leadership in their marketplace of ideas and in the media. And people do have connections and affinities to brands like Coca Cola. But if you if you have a some you know not a kind of global behemoth brand like that, but if you if you want to get a sense of who's behind it, yeah, and build that connection. And organisations that don't leverage their leader are missing out hugely. Um, totally agree with that. And it's, it's why I'm so interested to. Um, well, to, to, to get to know you a bit and to, to invite you on, on the podcast, there's this multi-billion dollar um, global PR industry out there. And the vast majority of all the agencies and all the in-house teams are focused on, on the company, you know, rather than the actual person at the top. Is it, is it your experience that, that the leader, the CEO, can find themselves in, in not a lonely position, but a position where their particular kind of communications needs are not particularly well met? by this this extraordinary, vast and, and very lucrative industry. Yes, I mean, the media want to hear from the chief executive. I mean, if you, you know, if Ian King Live, for example, want uh, the CEO of one of our clients on, uh, and we, they're not available, they don't say, well, can you send a junior press officer to come into the studio? They want, they go to the next 
competitor organisation that can deliver their CEO. So the media want to hear from the leader from the horse's mouth. They don't want a spokesperson. It's one of the reasons why people like Donald Trump are so successful on Twitter, because you know that it's the real them, that it's completely unmitigated. So I think there's, there's two issues for me. Is One, corporate communications teams still come at this from a kind of protection of the share price point of view. They're playing defence, not offence. So they're very reluctant for the CEO to say anything at all anyway, because what happens if he or she says something? And causes them grief. It causes a furore. Right, uh, might affect the share price. They're not in. They they view it as a kind of piece of vanity potentially, as, as something that you know to best play safe. You know, if you never leave the house, you can guarantee you're never going to get run over by a milk float. <laughs> yeah. But, so so for me, it's about that. Uh, and secondly. Uh, as you've said there, the, the both organisationally and personally, the CEO benefits. and the, uh, So it is something that needs to be done, but they're not geared up for it, I would say. Yes. And I, if you like, the bigger the company, the, the, the more powerful the business, the more risk-averse they can be. And so, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, incredibly controlling about what they say, you know, whether they have an opinion about anything, whether they can actually go out and take some, some risks. And audiences... They don't always want people to take risks, but they do want people to, to sort of stand out a bit, to, to stand up, to stand for something um, in the world. And, and that's often the hard thing for an individual to do, particularly if they are um, like an accountant type or they're a, they're a chief operating officer or they're a CFO. And suddenly they've got to be a CEO. They've got to stand on a platform and and. And they have, a, have an opinion about the world. They've got to take a view. They've got to lead people in a new direction. And these are all difficult things, which a lot of people, <laughs> my experience, need, need quite a lot of help and support to do, effectively. A- absolutely. And they're, they're stifled by the machine of that big corporation because they, they don't want a, a spicy CEO that's going to have opinions. And, and the conflict there, I would say, is manifested in something like, you know, we, we will write an op-ed for one of our CEO clients and for the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, it'll, it'll be challenging. It'll be spicy. It won't bring them into disrepute or say anything silly. But, of course, in order to get eyeballs and be shared, it's got to be reasonably controversial and challenging. But what, what often happens happens with big companies is that we'll write something that's really engaging and that we know that will be shared and it's frankly the CEO's real view it's what the CEO would say in private or to their own team or at an industry lunch um, it, and it's something that's you know not their private view but when it's codified and it's reduced to that op-ed as it were it then goes to what would be called compliance so sometimes it's their general counsel or it could be their PR team and they do the whole Sir Humphrey thing where they were like well that's awfully brave uh, <laughs> Mr Chief Executive there's, yeah. there's no way you can sure you, want to say that? you know Yes, it's true, and I know all of these things are true. We've got no argument with it, but you shouldn't say that. And what happens is, after it's come back from compliance in big companies, sometimes they'll say, well, clearly there's five things you've put in there that that just can't be said. So here here it is. Here's the version that we approve. And what comes back is that, yes, it's an inoffensive uh, article, but it's it's also insipid. It's lost its spice, and it becomes, you know, we need to connect with communities and our customers and all that generality stuff that no-one reads, no-one will share. And frankly reduces the authenticity of what the CEO was trying to say. So we end up in a lot of political battles behind the scenes where we say, well, thank you for your uh, advice and uh, amends there, but just so you know, we're ignoring all of them and we're going to put our version in the Wall Street Journal. You must be popular. Um, yeah, and I, and I sometimes try and talk this issue through with, with people and, and, and emphasize. If you stand up and say a speech like, you know, or, or an article, you know, innovation is the route to success. 
it's meaningless. It just it no one can disagree with it. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have any bite, as you say. And what you need in these situations, I believe, and, and the point I tried to make is, is you need an argument. You need something that someone out there could actually disagree with. You need something that gives it conflict. And when you've got some conflict in there, and I don't, I don't mean it has to be some almighty row about Brexit or Trump or anything else. It just has to be a little bit of tension in the piece. Then suddenly you're in business because then you've got an opinion that somebody out there can, can, can push against a little bit. And then you've got something that gets the attention of journalists and gets the attention of audiences. I always say to clients, you know, Obama once said very famously, we can disagree with one another without being disagreeable. And I think that's that, a great line. I think yeah. CEOs should be very challenging, but they and they should do it. In, it's uh, There's a book called Radical Candor that talks about this as a management style. And I think that they should be like that as long as they do it respectfully. And, and that's the problem that a lot of corporate companies, they don't even want the furore or the disagreement. Where it goes wrong, though, is what I call the Gerald Ratner moment. Do you remember when he very famously yeah. stood up at the IOD and said CRAP. his products were crap? Yeah. Right. Um, the problem with that was is that it demeaned his customers uh, and, and showed that he didn't have a respect for them by saying it and framing the debate in those terms. What he could have said is, many of my customers and competitors say our products are crap. So what we're trying to do all the time is listen to that and say, how can we improve them? Because we value our customers. They clearly like what we're doing, but how can we serve them better? You yeah. would have made the same point without demeaning his customers and all the stakeholders in his business. And that's the line, really. If you, if you have a genuine respect, then why would you want to pull your punches? You want a, re- a robust debate. The problem, as I say, is a lot of corporate comms team don't even want that debate at all because they they want to sell airline tickets. Or yeah, whatever it is. yeah, and then there's a there's a fear of the net going negative, and that's um, that's understandable. And, and I think given a choice to go positive with the story or go negative with the story, you go negative with the story. Um, you always find it easier to get journalists interested. Um, because journalists like things to go wrong, and they like bad news, they like You've scandal, death, years, destruction. Very well. One of the reasons I left journalism <laughs> was because uh, it's so blooming negative all the time, and I and I wanted to move to a more a more positive occupation. But you know, by framing the positive, it's just saying everything's grey, everything's rosy, um, the world is a wonderful place, and it's getting better. That doesn't give you anything either. So I, I like I like your your point about your, well, two points about one, you know. Don't do anything which disrespects your customer, the people who are actually buying your Or product. any stakeholders in your environment. And, and, and I totally agree with that principle. And the second thing which you touched upon, even if things have gone wrong, um, which they often do in business, and, and sometimes you make mistakes. And there's nothing wrong, I think, with talking about your mistakes in an open way. But that has to be coupled with an absolute determination to get better and to improve and to learn. And, and and your your illustration there through the Ratner example was, was just that even if even if the products were rubbish, what we want to hear is you're doing everything you can to make them better in a way that delivers for the customers, and that's that's the, the root of it all. I I have two two points to make. There. I wrote a column for the Independent about this quite recently. Is that chief executives? Uh, I've already said about the power of organisations to leverage their CEO in good times, but also. Boy, do they get it wrong, the corporate comms team, in bad times. You know, when things go wrong, the CEO should be front and centre taking responsibility for it, and that can actually mitigate the problem. So if you look at, say, United Airlines, that poor bloke got punched in the face and dragged off the plane, and within an hour they'd written a very technically written tweet that said that we regret having to reaccommodate this passenger and blah, 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 we'll look into it, and our staff feel terrible about this. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was appalling, but I tell you, that was written by a lawyer. 
a lot of lawyers now are still the board listen to the lawyer in times of crisis rather than the PR person and now things are changing right because what the lawyer will have looked at is said well we, we and again he will have said this incorrectly but he thought well we can't admit liability or express any form of disappointment or apology because that would admit legal liability mm. we might get fined 100 grand or whatever so we're going to have to have a technically worded thing the problem with that is one is it needlessly inflamed the situation and boy was it financially short sighted as well because yes they might have saved 100 grand on a, some, some lawyer's fee but they lost a billion dollars at one point off the <laughs> stock market value the next day. Yeah. And boards are starting to realise now that the actual financial power of reputation, coupled with the speed of social media, um, think you know, reputations can shatter within a couple of hours. You can get huge global brands like United Airlines that can lose a billion dollars off their stock market value because someone was punched on a plane, it was filmed, it was on social media, and then crucially, the one thing that they then had control of, how do they respond, they then completely messed up. A lot of that furore was caused by that tweet. Yeah. I, I was in an airport lounge at the time and I saw it on CNN on a split screen and they had the tweet on one side and then they had the bloke you know, covered in blood on the other side, half of the screen. And I thought, well, he hasn't been reaccommodated. He's been punched in the face. And and because they were dealing with it in such a technical and legalistic way, mm. that inflamed the situation. Which brings me to my big point about how CEOs should handle it. I always say to all of our clients, you're a pizza shop manager. In any situation at all, you're running a local pizza restaurant. Now, a customer has asked to see you because they're unhappy. You get there, and apparently the order was taken down wrongly and the pizza wasn't cooked correctly. You didn't do either of those things. You didn't personally take the order and you didn't cook the pizza, but you're there to take responsibility. The customer knows that as well. So you can either make this into a positive situation or a negative. What do I mean by that? One is you have to lead on empathy. The first thing you have to say is, well, you know, I was busy. I was, I was on the phone. And you'd write, you lead on, oh, I'm so terribly sorry for this situation. So you, you lead on empathy with the, the victim or the person complaining, not mm. about yourself or your own problems. The second thing is you take responsibility for this. You say, I, am, I, I obviously don't know what went wrong here, but I'm definitely going to get to the bottom of what went right, whether it was in the order or the chef. Either way, something's gone wrong, and I'm going to make it make sure that I know what's happened. And three, promise that you're going to put it right. Now, if the customer believes that or your audience believe that, that you've led with empathy, taken responsibility and are going to put it right, then and obviously apologising as well, then most people would say, oh, well, he, he, he did the best he can, and you mitigate the situation. So whether you're a pizza shop manager or the chief executive of a global brand, it's exactly the same way to handle the problem. And when I saw that tweet... I knew that it would cause the problem because it was the total opposite of what we've been preaching. What I, even in that moment, I didn't know what had happened, but I knew how I would have written the tweet. I would have said something like, seeing these images filled me with absolute horror that that happened on my plane. I have no idea what went on, but I'm damn well sure I'm going to get to the bottom of it and make sure it never happens again. I'm just so terribly sorry for everyone concerned. Yeah, yeah. Now, if the CEO had written that, what most people would have thought, oh, fair enough. Because yeah. we you know the CEO yeah. wasn't on the plane. No, no, no. He's taken responsibility. He's expressed horror, and he says he's going to put it right. What else can the bloke uh, do? Yeah, no, that's 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 such good advice. Um, and I think one one of the problems you you kind of alluded to already is you're not kind of comparing like with like in these situations. You know, you've got a legal response, and they're weighing up legal risks and threats. You, you've got you've got all sorts of risk officers who 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 are trying to you know quantify risks 
in different ways. And those are often sort of financial risks or political risks, all sorts of things. They'll try and put numbers on them and actuaries will sit down and ascribe probabilities. And then you've got communications people and storytellers. People We're, like lost you, you know. <laughs> We're lost in the line. We're lost in the line, always. Um, but, you know, we would argue the most most important in many ways. But we're not, we're not speaking the same language. We're not speaking a legal language. We're not speaking a language of probabilities and, and risks. We're saying to people that reputation matters. Reputation is hugely valuable. It's a very difficult thing to measure and it's a very difficult thing to sort of quantify the impact of what we and this is this, this is the age-old question with with pr isn't it and, and comms is like how on earth do you sort of prove the the value of it how on earth do you convince somebody that, that this thing is worth uh, you know investing in paying advisors for um you know devoting your energies towards i mean what's do you have an, an easy answer to that? Or? Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it short and that long and last, rambling yeah. one that I gave last time. Th- this is a responsibility that the board, that the leadership team of any organisation and the CEO have to lead on. If you speak to the actuaries or the lawyers, they're going to look at it through their lens. I don't blame them for that. The lawyer that wrote any tweet is going to do it to save costs. They're, 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 they're doing their job. But it's the board's job to look to look past the, the segmentation of how the workload is done and look at the impact overall on the business. So this is something that the board have to take responsibility for. And you know, one of the reasons I quote United Airlines is because you yeah, can show that dramatic financial stat that happened the next day that is you know undeniable that they lost a billion dollars off their stock market but um it, it is a challenge really because um you know often particularly in crisis situations as well we end up being the catalyst internally uh, arguing with the lawyers and arguing with people because often when a company has a problem that affects their reputation it's the symptom of a much deeper problem a, a disagreement over strategy or a problem's been allowed to fester or something and we're the kind of symptom of it and often we you know again boards think naively that we can just put a very nice press release out with some clever words and it'll just go away and i always say to clients look if you don't want to be on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper for clubbing baby seals to death then ring the, the crew now that are in the arctic on their way and call them off <laughs> don't do that bad thing because yeah. I can't stop you getting in the headlines and that's a level of challenge that the board and CEOs are starting to realise now is just how important reputation is it can affect absolutely everything now it is the platform upon which everything else is built right. and therefore web, we are becoming increasingly more important now as boards start to realise yeah this. and you can't do anything without a, without a reputation a good reputation for something um, and in reputation I guess it's about the things that you do um, and the stories you tell. Of course, the way that you communicate is is important and how you present the things that you've done, but actions as, as well as words. And that's an, another problem. I mean, we, we've we had this before where there's a global business and um, the, the industry magazine has said someone's made a complaint about one of the global directors or something. And where the first that the company's heard of it, the journalist has put a call into the, you know, the, the press office and, and where we've been asked to help. And the, the problem, the immediate problem we have there is, I mean, let's say it's a global business with 50,000 staff. There'll still only be four people in the world that could decide what can actually be done about that. Right. Are we firing this guy? Are we suspending him? Are we denying it? Are we, what, what are we literally doing? And sometimes I'll ask a question, and the, the reason why the company don't have an answer yet is because they, they don't know. There might be four people in the world that can actually make that decision, and one of them will be on retreat in Sri Lanka, one will be in the air, the other one will be at his mother's funeral, and there'll be some guy in New York that's five hours behind. Yeah. And, and sometimes I end up you know, chasing up to saying, are we going to fire this guy? Or are we saying that it's baseless and there's no merit? Are we going to go hell for leather and say we've already got rid of him? Because that, that literally informs 
Yeah, I uh, can't yeah, believe so that's the first principle. No, but this you, issue. You, you're one of the few people who can ask the question, and a lot of people in the business will be too nervous to ask the, the direct question that everyone kind of needs to know the answer to, and that's where the Cobb's advisor can come in and, and ask you know obvious questions, but often very very uncomfortable questions, particularly in the heat of a crisis. I have two or three times in my career answered on the company's behalf without knowing what their instructions are because I've either known they were going to do something about it and what they were planning to do and therefore in their interests of course I've, I've then said no we're firing this guy I've also a couple of times gone out on a limb and said we were going to do something so that our CEO client has deniability so that if they then decided to um uh, if it went down badly, he, he or she would have the option to say, well, I, I genuinely never told Paul to do that and could swear on earth. But because it's then worked out, they've then, you know, it's a win for them because they've, they've, I've met, taken the personal risk reputationally in saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do this. Right, um, yeah. But the, again, you have to be very careful. You have to know what you, you know, know what the client wants and so on. Oh, these, these, are, these are tricky areas. Um, let's let's just take a, take a step back um, and talk about... You talk very, um, very passionately and in a very engaging way about media and communications. You clearly love, you clearly love um, what you do. So, h- how did you get started, Paul? What, what, t- take me back to when you decided you wanted to. Did you decide you wanted a, a career in PR and communications? How did that come about? Do you, if do you, if I leave out all the failures along the way, it's quite no, a no, short no, I like story. Obviously, <laughs> if I leave the failures in, it will be a three-hour podcast. I mean, okay. honestly, I've learned so much by just cocking the job above the years in loads of inventive ways. <laughs> um, and I've always had a big believer in the, the positive power of mistakes. You know, I do believe they're, they're custom-designed lessons just for me to, you know, as to what works and what doesn't. And I, I'll always try and do something um, and run the risk of making a mistake than not doing something. Because it's my big bugbear about the, the lack of agility in big companies is that no one does anything because the minute you say something or you may have an opinion or you you do something there's the possibility for it to go wrong and that reflect badly on you personally whereas this is why a lot of committees go wrong is that they just kick the can down the road all the time because if no one does anything no one can actually you know if you call for more information yeah can criticize <laughs> you for that it sounds yeah. reasonable doesn't it whereas i'm like oh let's just get on with it <laughs> um um how did I get into it? I ran a small computer business in my early 20s in York, where I'm from. And um, uh, eventually, after a f- few years, I decided that um, I'd, I'd kind of just put an advert in a local paper offering to fix people's computers. And, and, you know, by the time I got to my mid-20s, I had like 25 people working for me. And I, I, d- I hadn't chosen to run a computer business, but it just kind of happened. And I had a kind of quarter-life crisis, I suppose, where I could thought, well, suddenly woke up and thought, oh, somehow I'm running a local computer business here, uh, and right. I never even set out to do that. So I thought, what do I want to do? So I uh, decided to train as a, a lawyer part-time. I tried to uh, pursue politics part-time as well. And then the third one is, what well, I'd got into PR locally because... I couldn't afford to advertise my business. I used to do stunts and all that kind of thing. And I'd become friends with the editor of the local newspaper and used to go drinking with them. And that really helped because I can see it in my book. I say, you know, no journalist ever responds to a spam press release and neither would they. But because I was friends with them, I'd send them a press release and they'd say, Paul, only because it's you, I'm going to tell you why this press release is terrible. (laughs) And, you know, this is what you should have done. And that actually gave me genuine advice. I started to see press releases from the recipient's point of view rather than me sending it because all I cared about is, am I getting in the newspaper or not? So my third thought was, I'll also do a little bit bit of local media consultancy on the side and see whether there's anything there. Mm -hmm. I'd had a bit of money from when I sold my business. So uh, I thought I'll pursue politics, law and PR and then see which ones... um, 
see which ones work and whichever one is left at the end I'll uh, you know if I fail at the other two I'll then stick to that yeah, one yeah and PR came came through which we'll talk about um I think that's so interesting because so many people in PR and comms and maybe I'm I, I would include myself in this they've never actually kind of done it for their own business you know that they've gone in uh, they might have come the journalist route like I did, or they may have gone straight into PR and maybe gone to work in a few agencies around London and done a bunch of work for a lot of different clients, uh, but they've never actually done it for themselves. And you know, kind of now I've got my own business, I'm I'm having to figure out PR, <laughs> having despite the fact I work, despite the fact I worked in a, in, now. in a PR agency, and of course I learned a lot there, but. Um, it's only when it's it's your thing that you understand just kind of what it takes to get out there and to to cut through, make an impact. And it's, some journalists do very well at PR; others don't. I, you know, the, particularly because journalism is very sadly so poorly paid these days. I don't, I don't, I'm not proud as a society that people like me are incredibly well paid, and journalists, frankly, aren't. But but in any event, I mean, obviously, I declare a personal interest. I'm glad I'm well paid. Um, but it's not uh, not good for a healthy society. But a lot of journalists will work in 10, 20 years in TV or newspapers or whatever, and then a lot of them will go into PR. And I've employed quite a few of them as well. It's a temperament thing, really. Being a journalist can really help you, but it's only half the job. Some journalists just assume they'll be a great PR, and they fail at it miserably. They were fantastic journalists, they're just not good PR. It is... It is actually quite rare to have someone who's a good journalist and is also a good PR as well. Uh, like yourself, I would say, is doing very well. David Yellen would be another one. Because they're, they're of the same world, but they're a different type of skill set. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're used to receiving calls from a PR and just saying, sorry, that's not for me, it's different when you're on the other side of the phone pitching in and eight journalists have turned you down. You know, I'd say it's more of a temperament thing to pick up the phone a ninth time and pitch it in. To, to a ninth journalist rather than it being the skill or is it because they're all turning you down there's something wrong with the story and that's where your journalistic training can well yeah, I think you just in. if you spend most of your career slamming down the phone to PR people suddenly do you want to be the person on the other end of the phone trying to sell in the story so there's that problem and there's a problem of it feeling kind of grubby and demeaning doing the, the media relations bit when you've been a journalist alright poorly paid but you have a grand opinion of yourself yeah. and you are pretty blooming influential particularly if you yeah. have a specialist. well we both are frankly where, yeah. we just have to hide it otherwise we're pinned Narcissistic, yeah. Um, but you know, journalists. But yeah, I was working for the BBC. Everyone wanted to talk to me. Yeah, it was, you know, and I, and I thought, oh, they love me. No, they love the BBC. You fool. Um, and I, that that brand was giving me all of my power. And you cross over to PR. Suddenly, no one returns your emails. No one returns your calls. And so that's that's problem number one. Problem number two is you've got all this capital, right? J- journalistic capital you've built up over, in my case, eighteen years. You don't want to squander that quickly by selling in stories that are rubbish particularly to your former colleagues picking up the phone and saying do you fancy talking to this but and you know in your heart of hearts that it's, and that's what it's clients that's what clients don't get i mean we were just hired by a um, um, venture capital firm in san francisco yesterday and he said oh you know you know the editor of harvard business review and forbes and fast company and you know fortune magazine and i do uh, they'll take my call but and they then assumed that they would run anything that i would give them and of course if I continually pitch them suboptimal stuff, they're going to not return or take my calls pretty yeah. soon. So that a lot of the legwork and the thought has to be put into making sure that uh, I understand 
Forbes's readership and what the editor wants. And, and so that when I ring Randall Lane, it's with something that, you know, 99% of the thinking has already been done. It's clearly something he would want. And therefore, he doesn't feel he's taking it as a favour because why would he? He's got lots, he wouldn't demean his own uh, magazine and his own editorial standards by putting in stuff for mates. Yeah. So, so being mates and having a contact book is fantastic. And I've got a great contact book, but I would never abuse that. I would always do the legwork. First, it also ignores the fact that, you know, we work in a lot of sectors where I don't know anyone in that sector. So you have to build the relationships up from scratch. Mm. Um, but I, I think for me, um, the big thing is, is is getting that story right. And the, the conflict of interest you have, which is a difficulty uh, that you've not mentioned so far in PR, is you've also got to keep the client happy. So like you just drank then from a, a cup the manufacturer of that cup will be a human being and they will genuinely believe that their cup is the best in the marketplace. You know, I I once worked for um, a photo developing company, a very long established brand, and um, Amateur Photographer Magazine did a comparative review of all online photo developers. And my client came in the lower lower 10th, I should say. Um, And my, um, the CEO was gutted at that and fired me and said, well, you know, how how can we possibly come seventh in a comparative photo review or whatever it was? And and I had to say, because it was a genuine, independent, journalistic exercise, and they believed you were seventh best. I yeah. can't influence that. Yeah. So you have, you have to uh, keep the client's spirits up and keep them positive without misleading them as well, because you can't guarantee them an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or that Forbes will take this or that the independent will run their column. So you, you, I'd say for me, it's very much a tripartite situation. There's me and there's the editor of whoever I'm pitching to, and there's the client, and literally triangulate that and keeping everyone's spirits approach yeah. is, is a, oh, but ultimately yeah. the client wants results so however it works as long as they get something and they perceive it's value you've won yeah but, but you've got to manage there. those expectations oh, it's horrendous. And, and it's it's oh, this is this really gets to the heart of it for me and the difficulty with with public relations particularly from a journalist point of view but for everyone is that ultimately who are you trying to influence you, you, well you want to reach audiences but to, to do that you've got to get through this this um bunch of incredibly independent-minded journalists they are often very skeptical they are very busy they are they know their subject probably sometimes better than you as the PR person does and yet you've got to give them something which they will want to run which also satisfies your client who often has unrealistic expectations of what's possible often. always, <laughs> always. <laughs> and uh oh so many disappointments can 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 result from this uh, this triangulation as you, as you identify but that's why it matters because if they could spend the money that they're spending on me on an advert in the newspaper and let's be honest there's a thing called banner blindness you know people have tracked pupils as they're surfing websites people can tell there's a, an advert in the corner of their screen and they don't even look at it yeah. they just know that there's a, there's an advert like thing in the corner of their screen so they don't even look at it advertising if i sound the best pr company in the world and i put an advert in the newspaper people know that i'm bound to say that that's why editorial matters because of that test yeah and it's gone through that filter and and that's what i say to clients well you can you can put your name on every bus in london it's not going to help you reach your objectives which is getting whoever you're trying to to your audience to think of you in in the right way to respect you in the right way and that that only comes well it, it can come through producing very good content of your own that's one 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 thing you can then you've got to work out how do you get that in front of a lot of eyes and distribute it but but the power still even in this this crazy kind of digital age social media the power still of of editorial 
is is uh, uncontested, I think. And and which brings us back to the podcast because I do want to talk about that. And you have, as I said at the beginning, had an extraordinary range of guests on on the Media Masters podcast, and 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 it is a who's who of of, of media in, in in many ways. Did you set out to do that at the beginning? Did you wake up one day and thought I'm I'm going to go around the, the all the media people I can find and just do podcasts with them? How, how did how did that sort of come into being? Or <laughs> if only it was that well thought through. <laughs> I love how you presume I actually know what I'm doing in your questions. And well, no, but, a... you know, looking back, it looks like this, this perfectly crafted plan. You know, you were ahead of the game. You set out to to build this incredible sort of media network, and and now your your business is is running largely as a result of your contacts with these media editors. So it seems from you know looking back this is a perfect perfect strategy but was yeah. it like that at the time it, it benefits it benefits the business indirectly hugely I, I would say one of the reasons why it's so successful if I can say it is is because my intentions are genuinely not commercial my first intentions are curiosity you know I, I've never had a guest on ever I can hand on heart that I've, I've just had cynically on as a potential client or something like that uh, you know I do have quite a lot of listeners now and I think it would I'd lose listeners if I just started to if it became just some kind of advertorial type thing so I, I mean it does benefit the business hugely indirectly but it, I think all of that flows from the the kind of intention the genuineness of my intention with it for it to be an interesting podcast with interesting people but yeah I mean particularly in America as well it's helped build my network uh, you know we I now know the editors of Forbes and Entrepreneur and Harvard Business Review, USA Today, you know, Wall Street Journal, blah, blah, blah. And they get podcasts in America. Well, if I emailed them and said, I'm some loser nobody from London, you one of 20,000 20, PR yeah. people that are spamming you every day, yeah. uh, can you spend an hour of your busy schedule just for me to talk at you? Yeah. You won't even get a reply. But when I say I've got, you know, several hundred thousand listeners and there's all the, and they look at the other people that have been on and they, they think, well, if Anthony Scaramucci has been on, and, yeah. you know, the editor of USA Today, then it must be a reasonable thing. And then at that point, they just say yes. I think it's uh, it's quite flattering to be asked to be on a podcast. I'm flattered now sitting on this uh, on this chair talking to you. Well, it's a great sort of reason to to talk to someone in, in a slightly more meaningful way and, and I think to establish a deeper connection. And I, I actually listened back to my own podcasts from a few weeks ago. Madness lies there. No, it is, it is insanity. Again, but but <laughs> I, I then hear things I didn't hear during the, the live conversation, and that triggers another idea. And I, and I can, I, it's such a useful way for me of getting getting to some clarity, which I then, you know, I'm trying to then turn some of these thoughts into this book, which I know you've 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 done as well with with your your fast PR book. Which I, I guess a lot of that was kind of born out of out of the podcast and those conversations that you were having. Yeah, the book was effectively a, a, a codified version originally of um, of a presentation I used to do. I, you know, like you, if someone if someone wants me to speak at something, I just say, well, how long do you want me for? Because I can do a, do it in half an hour. I can do a three hour version of it. I just there's more content in it and blah blah blah. Yeah. But I, I I've been doing this for sort of a decade or two now, and I thought I'd, I'd like to actually you know write a book and actually codify it all. And I set myself a goal of writing it in a year. And then, unfortunately, four years later, I finally got around <laughs> to finishing it. Because I'm quite proud of this. I only ever wrote it in airport lounges or on planes or in what I would call a, a travel delay situation. So right. rail replacement bus service meant that an yeah. extra chapter was going to get written. <laughs> um, so I was quite quite proud of that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it is content-led. I mean, the best way to sell is, is to not sell. So, you know, the best way for us to, uh, to grow my contact base has been the genuineness of the podcast. And it's the same with the book. I mean, if I handed you a... 
a leaflet now about why my business was great. No one cares about that. No one wants mm. to document selling. Um, whereas because it's a book and it's on Amazon and it's selling reasonably well and it's genuinely not a, a sales document, it's actual content, then I think the best way to sell is to, is, is to not sell, is to just give away your content and your expertise. And so I use it, as a, in a sense, as a piece of marketing. Yeah, it's quite, I mean, I think the, the culture has, has changed and, and we, we all kind of understand content marketing now more than we did. But still to... To give away your secrets is a is a is a funny thing to do. I did, and I um, also gave away all of them. I, I was. There must be more than than in the book. Uh, most <laughs> uh, mostly everything I know to say to, and do and not do is actually in the book, and yeah. I actually felt a little bit vulnerable when it came out because there's always that imposter syndrome because I've not come through a traditional journalism route or a traditional PR. Mm. You know, in one sense, you could say I'm a disruptor and blah, blah, blah. But you could also say, well, I've read his book and he's no wonder he's not doing as well as he could be in fulfilling his potential because there's five massive PR things that he's not even mentioned, you know. And yeah. that might be because I'm terrible. So there was a bit of vulnerability, you know, vulnerability at the point of publication. And then, of course, you get some good feedback and you, you think so. But I did want the book to be me. It's very cheeky and it's very do this, do that. It's the kind of book I always wanted to read when I first started, you know, people like Bob Leaf, who are legends, you know, um, who set up Bursa Mastella, you know, his book was lovely, but it's it's a big doorstop book. It's part memoir, part polemic. And, and I bought it and I did read it eventually, but it kind of sat on the shelf for a year or so because of my laziness. Mm. And I, I thought, well, do you know, I wish there was a book that just said, here's the 10 things you should do and here's the 10 things you shouldn't do and here's a few tips and it'd be practical and short and punchy. And yeah. I couldn't see the book, so I thought, well, there you are, so I'll write that's, it. That's great. And in a similar way, I'm... I suppose I'm trying to write a, the book that I wanted to read sort of four years ago when I was transitioning from journalism, which will be a different kind of book with a different different knowledge and, and experience and so on. But that's that's the key, write a book that you would have wanted, I think, or you you um, believe that, pe- that sort of fills a gap and does something that other people are not quite doing, which, which, which your book does. And the experience that you, you know, as, a, as an on-screen broadcast journalist, I think that... that, that the kind of take that you'll give will mean that it will be incredibly useful because, uh, you know, you know what works and what doesn't work. And, and I think, you know, the, the 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 long-term agency, traditional agency model of PR is dying, I feel, and mm. the media are now more interested in the leadership than ever. So I think ultimately the kind of niche that we're carving ourselves is the future. So you've you've got a head start on this because I, I do believe sort of five, ten years from now there'll be a lot more people doing what we do Overtly, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I sort of believe that, and, and I, I think as well with with accelerating technology and with AI and with you know already the, the algorithms are deciding what gets in front of us and, and and so on. But I think in this context, the kind of the human storytelling, like what does what does one one human being say when they stand up on a stage or in a media interview to an audience of human beings? It's that human to human contact and really understanding what it takes for an individual, a person, to, to cut through, to reach an audience, and to, to build and sometimes to defend their reputation. I think focusing on the individual, I hope, you know, we'll, we'll find out in five or ten years' time, but I, I hope that will, that will be um, sort of future-proofed against the, the rise of AI and, and acceleration of technology. But, you you, know, you also can't segment audiences in the way that you used to do. So, you know, the chief executive of Thomas Cook 20 years ago, my mum used to work at Thomas Cook when I was a... 
a kid and I remember reading things on her desk and one was like the shareholder newsletter where the CEO would write something for the shareholders. Then there'd be a customer newsletter where the CEO would write something a bit short and punchy that says, I'm always available, you know, hope you have a lovely holiday. Then there'd be a submission to the regulator and then there's, you know, uh, journalists would have a press release and never the twin would meet, you know. Now, if you're a CEO on Twitter... Everyone is following you, your own staff, journalists, regulators, door openers, key influencers. Uh, you know, I think that you've got to be very careful there in terms of, you know, you've got to say, be authentic and say one thing to everyone because you can't pick people off now. And if you do, you end up, I mean, it's again, back to the United Airlines thing. Uh, the CEO then wrote a confidential email to all the staff on day two. Well, of course it leaked. So, uh, you know, I think he should have written a, a blog post or something on the website that was to absolutely everyone rather than kind of picking off and segmenting certain sections of the audience. You can't do that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So you're a disruptor. You describe, describe yourself as a disruptor. And, Falsely, and, probably. No, no, not at all. And, and, and the, 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 your sort of cheeky personalities coming through in the book, in the podcast, and in all sorts of ways. And I, I just wonder what you think of the the, the, the big sort of you know, world of, of, of corporate PR, the agencies that dominate the landscape in London. I mean, you say that this, this agency model is, is ripe for disruption. Um, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, do you, do you, a lot of these agencies, despite predictions of, of their demise, despite predictions of the death of PR, still seem to be growing and, and developing. I mean, PR itself is never going to die. I think we can probably both agree on that. There'll Look, be some you, form of communication. You, you'll but. need a lift from this street to, you know, five, ten streets away, wherever you're going to go next. In the old days, it was black cabs. Now it's Uber. The, the demand for what you what needs to be done, that transport is is there. It, how it's delivered, the whole business model has completely changed, and it's the same with agencies. I, I see big agencies as the kind of black cabs of, of, um, of this way of doing business. And you're starting to see now... Things like with Martin Sorrell resigning from WPP, you know, big behemoth agencies like that, I think, are in very, very long term decline because people want agile, smaller agencies where they feel they've got a connection at all levels and then they're not just merely an account. Uh, but also, you know, these they're they're fishing in the in in an increasingly irrelevant pond because they 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 haven't taken advantage of digital. That's one of the reasons why Martin Sorrell left is because WPP, you know across the whole organisation really hasn't embraced digital and what it means. It's not just some of the market or some add-on. It, it's changed fundamentally the way that the whole business has to be run in terms of not being able to segment audiences, in terms of how crises are handled, and also in terms of what the media are interested in. Ian King wants the CEO of someone on tonight on his show. He doesn't want some press officer. Mm. So I think it's, they're still looking at it like digital is just some other piece in the jigsaw, not that it's completely changed the whole landscape, which I believe it has. And because of that, because they're big and they're not agile and they're not able to, to, to you know, um, reformat themselves in that way, I do think that it's going to we're going to start to see some big corporate failures. Yeah, well, um, and it's but it's 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 all about people, isn't it? You know, like this this business that we're in, it's about people hiring people and and trusting somebody to deliver for them. And uh, personally, I, I wouldn't hire an agency on the name of the agency. I'd want to know who was, who was leading the account and, and who was going to be in the team. And, uh, and that's that, the best question you can ask because yeah. uh, if you go to the PRCA or the CRPR or these websites and they say, if you're going to hire a PR agency, what questions should I ask? The question number one is, I want to meet the people who I'll actually be working with yeah. 
if I'm if I hire you because you know the old cliches that you meet the chief executive who promises you the earth and then you don't seem for dust once you've signed because oh, you're yeah. now given a 22 year old graduate with bum fluff. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Um, great, Paul. It's it's been a great conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been just, long and just, rambling, hasn't it? Well, Sorry. It's, been, no, it's been great. We've we've we've. I think we've solved most of the, the issues yeah. that we came here to, <laughs> to talk about. So that's the mission accomplished. Just tell me about about. You know, life outside of uh, of your of your business and your podcast. Whenever I see you on Instagram, I see your your dogs. Yes, that's basically it. <laughs> well, that's basically. It. I have a wife, a house, two dogs. Cars, <laughs> what are the dogs called? Just, uh, Billy and Betty. I, I, I travel they look, a lot. They look lovely. They on, are. On the, they on are. The photo. They are. I mean, Billy's like genuinely one of my best pals. You know, we have a little <laughs> friendship going. I love that little lad. Uh, but uh, yeah, I work away most weeks. Every other week, I'm in America. Um, so that's that's obviously a challenge, but uh, you know I'm building the business, and yeah. you've got to go where the work is. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean things are going great. Unless I, I, I cock the job up, then uh, you know more of the same. So can you can you imagine a day when you you, you know you, you hang up your your PR whatever you have as a PR person, and um, you know go and sit on a beach somewhere, or you know what's the what's the end goal? What would you like to be doing twenty years from now? I, I do you know I don't know. Um, I mean I. This sounds a bit of a cliche, but I genuinely don't see what I do as work. Mm. Um, That's a great attitude. I I, I don't. I mean, is this work? I mean, you could say I'm promoting my business or book or whatever, but actually I'm talking with an interesting guy. We're building a friendship. This doesn't feel like work. This podcast. And and I've got a great team behind me. I I wouldn't want to be on my own. When I have done that, you can earn more money sometimes, but uh, in the short to medium term. But actually, it's not for me because I want to run a, a small business. And I think what I'm trying to do is perfect the the number, right number of people that's right for me. You know, at the moment it's twenty, but is it thirty? Is it, I, I don't want it to be fifty or a hundred, but is it actually thirty five or twenty five? So that feels to me quite an exciting journey of how best to implement my vision of of what it is I'm doing. I think in the very long term. So you don't you don't want to create a massive global thing it's oh. always been it's very much about you and, and, the, and the close team and delivering for the clients yeah have. i have six senior fee earners and they're i mean they are genuinely you know cleverer than me and better than me in a lot of ways i mean that's another problem that founders get is the clients mistakenly assume that i know better than my team and often i genuinely don't i mean i'm really proud of the fact that i've got some really good people working for me i think what i have learned over the last few years is and this sounds brutally commercial uh, but the more a client pays, the better the client is. And I don't just mean that in the monetary terms, but I've always found the less demanding they are. So, you know, we, you know, back in sort of even as recently as four or five years ago, we'd have clients that pay us two or three grand a month and they'd work us to death. They'd be on the phone every day. What's happening? What's happening? Yeah. We have clients that are paying sort of 20, 30 times more than that now, significant sums. And they might ring us twice a month. And it's just, it's a more... Um, well, they, but they've got to, to trust you to deliver, though. They've got to trust you to, to uh, and do stuff. Alistair yeah. Campbell said to me once, there's a name drop, he said... Yeah. Um, <laughs> On he the said, podcast? He, uh, I don't think it might have been off, off the record, but <laughs> he said, he said, uh, he said uh, the, the significant fee level, people hire you for who you are, not what you do. And that's what I'd like to get to, is where we're trusted advisors that aren't really doing a lot, but we're kind of Yoda figures, you know? Yeah, just just there is that presence. <laughs> sometimes real, sometimes just a hologram. And it's an incredible privilege to be at the side of CEOs around the world, because they do take you into their confidence, and you end up advising on all and getting involved in all kinds of adventures. It's, yeah, it's well, that's an amazing job. position to, to get to when that trust is there, and, and, and they, they start to open up properly, and, 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 uh, and respect, respect to you. Um, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, really best of luck with with the business. Um, 
keep keep going with the Media Masters podcast. You know, it's great. And, Second and... best podcast in the game <laughs> after this one. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll we'll keep keep enjoying it and and listening to it. So thanks very much. It's been a great pleasure to have me on. Thank you. <laughs>